your Bibles open this morning <clears throat> to the whole of Luke chapter 1. Uh, in the interest of time, we only read Mary's story, uh, but we're actually going to look over the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents, uh, while we're going through it. Uh, but we just we tried not to read that much in the interest of time today. Um, but if you were here last week, you heard us say that Luke has started his uh, uh, gospel out by telling Theophilus, this person he's writing to, that he wants for him to be certain about what he's been taught. But the way in which he wants that certainty to come about is not through like a, an archaeological report or maybe some philosophical abstract. Rather, the certainty he wants you to arrive at is going to come to you in the form of a story. And the question we're going to ask really for the next few months here at Christ Pres is, why were these stories compelling? In other words, what was it about them that caused people, when they heard them, to give up their lives in service of the main character of these stories, Jesus of Nazareth? What would cause people to do that? Well, last week we, we talked about that, that question, that it had something to do with the idea of story itself. Because at first glance, it sounds a little weird to say to someone, well, you know what? I really want you to be certain about the things that I'm teaching you. So once upon a time, would you ever talk to anybody in that particular way? Why would that be convincing to us? But more and more, I think psychologists and researchers in our age are seeing that stories have a very special impact on us and that we make sense of our lives largely in narrative ways. Um, most of us tend to think about our thoughts uh, as if they're kind of marbles rolling around in our head, isolated ideas that are really not connected to anything. But the truth of the matter is our, our thoughts are much more like, like spider's webs, interconnected, uh, 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 the interconnections that play off each other and themselves create the awareness of the world around us. But again, psychologists are saying that the way those webs hang together is in the form of a story. So what that means is, is at any given time, you, <laughs> I used to tell college students all the time, you are the star of your own movie. You are living a story. That story has a plot. It has a direction. And one of the best ways to kind of understand your particular mood at any given time is by asking yourself the question, what kind of story am I in? Sometimes it's a comedy. Your life is hilarious. Sometimes it's a tragedy, heartbreakingly sad. At other times, there's a big obstacle you've got to get around, and it's, a, it's an action-adventure. But we all wrestle with this idea of what my story is. It's a great way to start a friendship, by the way. Sit down with somebody and be like, hey, what's, a, what's your story? So Luke is tapping into something very foundational in us when, in chapter 1, verse 5, he opens his entire discussion with the phrase, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. And suddenly we know we're in for a story. I want to suggest to you this morning that, that Luke chapter 1 is kind of a drum roll. It's the drum roll that is leading up to something that really has one central point to it. And that is that Jesus of Nazareth was not incidental to human history. That is, he was what everything was leading up to. And that his coming represented an inbreaking of supernatural power that brought God's people what their soul needed more than anything else. And you know what that is? The coming of a king. So three things this morning. Jesus represents for us in Luke chapter 1 three things. Number one, he is the crux of human history. 
Number two, he is an invasion of the supernatural. And then number three, he represents the coming of salvation. The crux of history, the invasion of the supernatural, and the coming of salvation. First of all, look, the whole backstory of the passage that we're reading here is one of anticipation and one of fulfillment of anticipation. So much so that when miracles kind of start happening, like old, barren women suddenly getting pregnant, uh, angels appearing with divine messages, and then, lo and behold, uh, a virgin getting pregnant. When all of these things start happening, the people in in Luke chapter 1 look at those events, and they say to themselves, at last, at last God is keeping His promises. And it'd be okay to ask the question, well, what promises are that? Well, I think it's crucial for us to remind ourselves that Luke's story that he is telling is part of a larger story that the Bible is telling. And frankly, I find less and less people are aware of this fact. Like if someone asked you the question, what is the Bible about? Most fundamentally, how would you answer that? Well, my guess is is if you found Zechariah or Elizabeth, his wife, or even Mary a year prior to all these events happening, and ask them, you know, what is the Bible about? They would say something like this. Well, we believe that God created the world for His glory. But human beings came along and messed it all up in rebellion. But God chose us, the Jews, to be His special people. And through us, God is going to fix everything that is wrong with this world. God said to our forefather, Abraham, that all of the nations of the earth were going to be blessed through us. That's the story of the Bible. In other words, God would show up eventually and win a victory over every bully in your life, over every evil superpower in the world, in our country, in our state, in our city, in our neighborhood, even the bullies inside your own head he would come to topple. And so therefore, when the story begins in the days of Herod, king of Judah... We find a group of people who are living in daily misery. It had been 400 years since anyone had even heard from God. What were that? Has he forgotten us? Has he left us? Has he abandoned us forever? Well, all of a sudden you get Mary singing her famous Magnificat. By the way, we use the, the word Magnificat because the first word of her song uh, in that uh, passage that we just read in Latin is the word Magnificat. You guessed it. But what is she talking about in that prayer? What is the theme of that particular prayer? If you just take a quick glance over it. I would submit to you that Mary is talking about worldwide revolution. She is coming in verses 51 through 54, and she says that something's going to happen that will topple the mighty and will raise up the brokenhearted. Again, we didn't read it, but down in verse 69, it records Zechariah saying much the same thing by saying that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. In other words, all these people rise up and they are giddy over the fact that God has not forgotten. Finally, things are going to change. Nothing will be the same after this. As I was sort of thinking back to this, I had a memory that was brought back to me. Um, It's not a pleasant memory, but it was from uh, September 11th, 2001, sitting on my couch and watching the second of the World Trade Center towers fall. Um, uh, and I remember, I remember my stomach churning, because I'd actually been to New York a number of times prior to, and just watching the, 
The loss of life in that picture is just, it's grisly to think about. But I remember sitting with my, uh, on my couch with my two uh, then toddler daughters uh, and looking at them in the face and saying, girls, you're too young to understand it and you probably will never remember it. But everything changes now. Nothing can be the same after this. It's the reason why we talk about ourselves of living in a post-9-11 world, because that event was so dramatic, such a dramatic scar across the psyche of our country, there's nothing is the same afterwards. Well, that's a little bit of the emotion that people are finally feeling. Um, the, the, the time in which most of you got it <laughs> was, um, was when you got married. Uh, again, I, I, this joke is only funny to me, but in a former life, seven weeks ago, um, I used to be a, work with college students. And so uh, one of the sort of occupational hazards of that is to get to do a lot of weddings, like a lot of weddings. And weddings are great. They're great. Your, your wedding was great, I promise, if I did it. I married half the state of Mississippi, so your wedding was the highest thing of joy I could ever have. One of the best things about being at a wedding is being in that little room off the side of the sanctuary prior to with the groom and the best man. Nobody gets to see this, but I love it. Because there's that moment where you're kind of sitting in that room and you're sort of waiting there. And, you all, and more times than not, it would sort of wash over the groom what was about to happen. And invariably, he would, he would get a little white, a little pale, and start to breathe a little heavier. And, he's, and th- this was the look that he had on his face. It was like, <sighs> so this is it, right? What, what, what happened? <laughs> in that moment, it crashed in on him. After this, nothing is the same. It all changes here. And that's exactly what the people of God realize when all of a sudden these miracles start happening. These strange things begin to pop up, and they begin to look and say, Jesus is coming. And you know what's funny about that is that actually is true for every Christian. Every Christian can describe a time in their life where they reach, to use the Bible's words, their own fullness of time. And you look back at the events of your life and you thought to yourself, it was all leading here. Everything was pointing to this moment. Finally, God is breaking in. Every Christian says that. And even if you're, the time of which you became a Christian is a mystery to you, or if it's a long time in the past, I'll bet you there are times where all of a sudden God breaks into you in massive sort of life turning points where you suddenly realize I can't go on the way in which I did before. It's all about to change. Jesus shows up in these places with cataclysmic instinct to show us that everything follows in his wake when he shows up. So Jesus is the crux of human history, and he's the crux of our personal history. But secondly, he also represents an invasion of the supernatural. An invasion of the supernatural. The reason why I mention this is because Luke's passage is unapologetically referring, as if it were nothing, to a world where crazy things happen. And um, it's really odd because he began his letter kind of logical, right? Remember how he was going to do something where he was going to prove to you these things and uh, he was going to make you certain and walk you through this orderly account? (laughs) And now he's talking about angels and, and now you really expect me to believe that a virgin got pregnant? Really? Are we still in that place, Les? Well, I want you to know that this has actually been, especially the virgin birth, a pretty key sticking point for people, especially in a Western Christianity. And the reason is, is because they say to themselves, 
the Bible is full of miracles. And here's their justification. Science has proven to us that miracles don't happen. So I really can't trust that Bible now, can I? Hmm. If you've ever thought that or been sort of uh, lured by that, I want to give you an invitation. And that is to go sit down with a, with, a, with a junior philosophy major at Ole Miss. And what they'll help you understand is, is that statement, science has proven that miracles can't happen, is rather famously hard to really prove. And again, I'm not going to bore you with philosophy 101 here, but bear with me for just a second. If a scientist makes his world the realm of the natural world, and he says, you know, from what I can see, observe, and test... I really can't see that there would be a reason for a miracle. Do you realize that that's one thing to say? And funny, I actually agree with them in that regard. But for them to make the jump, and it is a jump, to then say, therefore, miracles cannot exist, and a world beyond the natural world that I see is unable to exist, that's a little bit of a leap. It's actually a leap of faith that cannot be tested. So therefore, if someone sort of brings that to you, I would simply argue that that conclusion doesn't follow. No, Christianity is not anti-science. Far from it. It's actually great affirming of science. They're not enemies with one another. All we're simply saying is, the natural world is not everything that we see. And does the world fit in if we exclude that from us? Or does it make sense? And frankly, Christians buckled under this for the last 150 years. We've got a lot of Christians in our day who look at even things like the virgin birth and be like, I don't really think you've got to believe in the virgin birth in order to really be a Christian. Do I? They buckle under this, which to me always seems so crazy. It's like, look, if you're willing to concede the idea that there is a God, then why would it be so weird or unnatural to think that he could, at his will, overrule the natural order of things and carry out his plans? But this morning, I simply want to suggest to you that from Luke, Luke explains this angels and weird stuff happening as really the point. That is the point. And that is this. This other world, this supernatural world, it's breaking into our world. There has been now a chasm between the supernatural world and the natural world that has now been breached. It's happening. And you can know that it's true. You want to know why? Because the natural world is convulsing underneath it. (laughs) It's rippling with miracles. Now look, we're going to talk about miracles a whole lot more as we get through Luke's gospel. So stay tuned uh, for more information on that. But I simply want you to notice this. Like There are a few things in your life that are more compelling than that idea of people who went over on the other side and then came back. You know, um, I heard someone say that... uh, Every talk show is looking to do well during sweeps week. You know what sweeps week is. That's when you're being rated on how popular your TV show is. And so what producers will do is they'll put the most wildly fantastic stories during sweeps week. Well, one of the best ways to ensure that you'll have a high viewing rating on sweeps week is if you offer a, uh, uh, um, a dead and come back from the dead story. You know what I'm talking about? The person who, who died, they were legally you know, declared dead. They were over there, and then they've come back. We're dying to hear those stories, right? <laughs> and, of course, it's amazing how, how we all know what's in store for us on the other side, right? There's apparently a, a long, dark tunnel, um, at the end of which is a, is a soft, glowing light. And uh, uh, we find there our dearly departed loved ones or something like that. But here's what Luke is saying. He's saying, I know you're compelled by those ideas, 
But you don't need to long for it because now that place has come to our place. There has come to here. He has come to us. It's not that we have to pine and look and wonder because now we know the supernatural has broken in. Which leads me to my last point. Jesus represents the crux of history, an invasion of the supernatural. And then thirdly and finally, the coming of salvation. We didn't read this far in Zechariah's hymn of Thanksgiving, but we see an insight that oftentimes is lost on people who are reading Luke to discover the compelling Jesus. And that is he sings of a salvation that is, quote, from our enemies in verse 71 and 74. But something's changed in Zechariah. He's discovered the true enemy of the Jewish people. Again, if you were to ask Zechariah a year before all this crazy stuff started happening in his life, angels appearing, and asked him exactly what his people's main problem was, he probably would have said something to the effect of, well, my people are living under the oppression of a foreign invader. Like, we suffer every single day. Political oppression are making my people miserable. And look, there is no doubt... And you cannot read the Bible, I'm suggesting, without seeing in it God's intention to relieve His creation of that very thing. Over and over again, if you read through the Old Testament prophets, they are constantly hammering this theme that God is going to redeem all people from their misery and from their fear. And there's no doubt that God desires to do that. Frankly, Mary's song can hardly be taken any other way. I actually read something a couple of weeks ago in preparation for this. Um, A quote from William Temple, who used to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, who had instructed at one point to his missionaries in India not to read Mary's Magnificat out loud because for fear that the sort of subversive language would get them in trouble with the government. Like, you cannot read Mary's story without realizing God is not just coming to deal with my personal neuroses. (laughs) Rather, He's coming to heal the world around me, and that includes the social structures. Well, Zechariah, of course, doubted God's messenger, Gabriel, in the midst of his story, and he's had to be, he he couldn't speak for a few months. Remember this? But of course, a wiser Zechariah then wises up in verse 77 when he finds that the foundation of the enemies of of, uh, Israel are really spiritual in nature. And that's why he says in verse 77 that he comes to give knowledge of salvation to his people, ready for this? In the forgiveness of their sins. Ah, now we find out where the revolution is going to begin. And it's going to begin in the human heart. Again, my favorite commentator, Michael Wilcock on Luke, he says this, before there can be a right relationship between man and man, there must be a right relationship between man and God and the sin which spoils that must be repented of and removed. We must believe, as clear-thinking Christians, listen to this, in every age we have believed that it is the will and plan of God for all wrong relationships, political as well as spiritual, eventually to be put right. We include, therefore, in our preaching of salvation, the need for the righting of wrong social structures and physical conditions. But, and this is the big one, we keep at its center the need for the cleansing of sinful human hearts. That is the primary concern of the people of God. Okay, look, we've talked about this this summer, but it bears repeating here for us. My guess is, is if you grew up in this world, 
you probably grew up in a church world of one of two extremes. On the one hand, some of you grew up in churches where when you heard the word salvation, they were primarily talking about a social uh, transformation. They were talking about getting relief in the area of oppression, uh, that there would be, the world would be a place of justice and of peace and of beauty. And that's really what the Bible meant when it was talking about salvation. But of course, you probably buckled under that a little bit if you're normal, because frankly, what those pulpits become are just simple bully pulpits for political agendas and people standing up ranting about their particular viewpoint and their particular way. And it becomes very moralistic at that particular end. And in, in, in many ways, becomes just like every other world religion that wants the same thing. But for others of you, you grew up in a different sort of religious uh, context where when you heard the word salvation, it was cast in purely individual terms. That is, salvation is about you coming to a moment of decision, a decision that affects you and the most important thing you could ever do, which is to figure out whether you're going to heaven or whether you're going to hell. That's the most important thing. But the problem with that particular viewpoint was, is it kind of makes Christianity this little lifeboat that you climb on, you know, and we're sailing towards heaven in this good old gospel ship, but we're trying to get away from this terrible world that we live in. But how do you read Mary's story as not affecting the world in which we live in? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. And by the way, it's equally moralistic. Look, you may not realize, but y'all, this is a huge controversy among Christians. Which is it, Christ Presbyterian Church? Are you a church that focuses on social transformation? Or are you a church that focuses on, you know, sort of personal salvation? Which one is it? Well, I hope that you've got the wherewithal to realize that the answer is, of course, both. But what Mary and Zechariah, I think, are providing for us as we think about what it means for us to be the church, specifically, is they establish a priority. And that is simply this. This is my little summary statement. The transformation of the world is only going to be accomplished when individual lives are transformed. It starts with individuals. As we gather, we deal in the realm of human hearts. So that when when the gospel grabs you here, it sends you out into those other places to deal with the world on your terms. But I think the Bible actually gives us an image here, and it comes in Mary's, Mary's song. How do you help hold that balance, Les? Because I really, I don't know, I don't want us to become one of those kind of left-wing kind of churches that just gets all political, but I guess you're right. It is kind of an ugly fundamentalism that just wants to focus on whether people are going to heaven or hell. How do we hold that balance? Well, Mary is, Mary is your solution. <laughs> because, and you know what it comes in? It comes in Mary's child. In verse 32 and 33, we find out that Mary's son is going to be a colossal figure. He will be the greatest ruler, not only that Israel has ever seen, but that the world has ever seen. He will be the true king, the king of all kings. And that's the image. I simply want to pitch it to you this morning, that if you keep the image of Jesus as the long-expected king... That's the way to keep a church on mission. You want to know why? Because the way in which a king functioned in the ancient Near Eastern world. We don't have kings anymore, so we don't understand this. But suffice to say that if you lived in that era, the king was the most important part of your daily life. On the one hand, he is most effective of your economic life. You could not put food on the table well if there was not a good king. Number two, he affected your, your, your basic human freedoms. He was one who had sole governance over your your passage from one place to the other. 
He also was the one who affected your spiritual temperature. A bad king in ancient Near Eastern times meant a bad life. You were connected to the king. And so what that means then is, even though we don't live with kings anymore, depending on how you grew up, this can be very helpful. <laughs> because you've got a lot of conservative folk who whenever they hear the church talking about social structures and fixing our town, Oxford, healing the places that are broken in this city, they throw their hands up in arms. Aha! You've gone political. I knew you were going to do this. You've become one of those social justice warrior churches that I've been reading about in the blogs. We've lost the spirituality of the gospel. But if you grew up on the left and you hear us talk about the fact that King Jesus wants you to draw near to him because he wants to deal with you as an individual to submit to his lordship, then you're going to say, oh, great. So I'm in one of those churches? Okay. One of these fundamentalistic churches that all we're going to talk about is talking about going to heaven when I die. But here's the deal. If Jesus is king, you don't have to choose. Because he's king, he demands loyalty from every one of his subjects. That means he's after your heart. Not your wife's heart, not your husband's heart, not your, not your parents' heart, but your heart. That King Jesus demands submission from all of his people, but because he's king, he's got a plan. He's got a plan to unite everything under his lordship that he's working out through generation after generation and generation. If Jesus is king, then he comes to bring a salvation that I don't have to figure out whether it's individual or social. It's both. So here, therefore, is the good news. The good news is that the king has come. And as it turns out, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. One of my favorite stories comes from the, the Lord of the Rings, the third book in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The book, not the movie. <clears throat> he said emphatically. But it happens when Aragorn, the son of Arathorn, returns to the great city that for ages has not been ruled by the true king, but rather by an appointed steward. steward. The present steward is a man named Denethor. And Denethor has not been wise, and it totally leaves him unprepared for the onslaught of evil that is presently uh, uh, stacked against him. Denethor doesn't see his own stupidity, but his son, Faramir, does. And even though Faramir would be the next in line to be the next steward to rule over the kingdom, um, he actually longs for the true king himself. But in the midst of a great battle, the young Faramir is injured, seriously injured, and thought to be near death. And so his soldiers bring him up into the houses of healing deep in the heart of the city. And there comes Aragorn, the true king, the long-awaited king. And as he arrives, he calls for a flower. And he takes the flower and puts it in a bowl and he crushes it. And he steeps it in warm water. And the book says that the steaming water filled the room. And as the fragrance of the room fills, Faramir wakes up and says this. Suddenly Faramir stirred, and he opened his eyes, and he looked on Aragorn, who bent over him. And a light of knowledge and love was kindled in his eyes. And he spoke softly, My Lord, you called me. I come. What does the king command? Walk no more in the shadows, but awake, said Aragorn. You are weary. Rest a while, and take food, and be ready when I return. I will, my Lord said Faramir, for who would lie idle when the king has returned? 
Look, y'all, Luke chapter 1 is the drum roll. What does a drum roll do for you? It calls you attention. You look around. You start to search. It captures your imagination for what must be going on. And Luke, number, Luke 1 is coming to us and saying to us this morning that we in our own personal sort of houses of healing are hearing the same thing, that the king is coming and the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so what that means is, is that the same question that Faramir had ought to be our question. Who could lie idle when the king is returned? Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, we will not lie idle. We will stand and we will lift our voices as best as we can to sing the praise to the King. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give a sense of you being a father to us, of being a king and a healer who steeps our home with sweet fragrance of your presence so that we might wake up, wake up from our slumbers and realize that it has been you that has been calling. Would you do that? Even this morning we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.